This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Today's guest is a special one. Dave and I have known author Karen Rivadonera for over two decades. Our paths intersected in the magazine world where we all worked for the same publishing company, but on different publications. We have since all moved on, but are still making a go at the writing and publishing life. Karen has done more than make a go of the writing life, actually. She's published 13 books, both for adults and children. Today, her focus is on children's books. In fact, she's dug in and written a writer's statement that says, I write stories that spark wonder, fuel curiosity, and craft worlds that help kids find their place in this one. Today, we are so happy to have Karen join us to discuss the highs and lows of the writer's life, how she narrowed her focus to children's literature, and her best advice for aspiring writers. Welcome, Karen. We're so happy that our lives are intersecting again. Thanks for being here. It's so great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So before we dig into this interview, which we are really excited about, we know that you're going to have so much wisdom to share with our audience. Dave and I want to share some areas where we've made progress this week. So Dave, you go first. I had a hard time thinking about this, but yesterday I signed up for a online course to help me and us with how to build a membership community. So I have done this before. In fact, Karn, you may remember, that's what I did at, at the end of my tenure at the publishing company. I was in actually new product development. And I, I actually, I don't know if I was a co-founder. I certainly was a person who implemented it, uh, a membership community. So through the years, I've always wanted to do that. But I realized I really need to grow in that. So my progress is that I signed up and spent a little money on an online course that should take about, I think they, they walked you through it over three or four months. So we'll see how it goes, but that's my progress. What have you learned so far? You took one lesson. What was the takeaway from that one lesson? So the big thing um, in this, I'm not sure it was actually embedded in the introduction video, but one thing I've learned is that people do not pay for content online. In other words, you can't say, okay, I'm going to create all this content and put it behind a paywall and people are going to pay for it. That's just not how it works, right? People pay you for progress. And so um, as you're building a membership community, you have to do two things, build community and help that community make progress. And so obviously there's a content piece to that, but it's only one piece. That's good. That's really How about good. you? So I'm realizing that God gives us marriages to help us make progress in life because so many of my progress reports have to do with my marriage and they're usually really stupid, mundane things, but don't blame week, it on God. <laughs> this week I made, I made, I made cookies, ginger snap cookies. And yeah, you like dip them in cinnamon sugar before you put them on the pan and cook them. And I, there's this plastic container, large plastic container from Sam's club, the shake kind. And that's usually where we keep our cinnamon sugar, but it was out. And so it was empty. I'm like, oh, I'll just toss that in, you know, the, the recycling because it's empty and create my own in a bowl and whatever. And so my husband comes in and he sees the empty container in the trash can. He goes, what did you do with my cinnamon sugar? I go, well, it was empty. He goes, well, you could have mixed it. You could have made more cinnamon sugar and added it to that. I'm like, 
well, why didn't you do it? He goes, well, why didn't you do it? And so I dug in my heels. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. This is his thing. If he wants cinnamon sugar and the plastic container, he should put it. And then finally I did it. And then I started to recognize, oh, there are a lot of little things in our marriage that I just kind of let him do. And so I'm trying to pay attention to the small things. So that's progress. I'm paying attention to the small things that I can do, like unload the dishwasher, put the load of laundry in the dryer. I mean, I just, I just, I tend to ignore those things because I don't like them, but he, he does them, you know? So now I'm trying to pay, take a little bit of ownership. So that's my progress. <laughs> that's actually real progress. I, uh, uh, I'm probably more like you than like your husband. So uh, that, that's awesome. So yeah. you're not holding a grudge though while you're doing it, right? No, no, I'm glad. I'm glad to do it. And you know, sure you are. <laughs> it takes like 20 seconds. I'm like, I did the cinnamon and sugar, you know, it took like, you know, 20 seconds. So anyway, we have cinnamon sugar and I'm making progress and noticing needs in the household. All right, Karen, do you have any sort of progress you want to share? Not to put you on the spot. Exactly. I'm thinking about that. I like the cinnamon sugar thing. And yeah, I probably still hold too many grudges. I was just thinking that this past week, I think it was on Friday, I had a bunch of deadlines. Do you ever have that? Like where you say yes to a bunch of different things because you're like, they're all spread out. I can do this. But then somehow they all come together at that one moment. So I felt like this past weekend, and I met them, I got everything done by Friday. And this weekend, I actually had some like just downtime and like relaxing. It was this gorgeous weekend. And so that felt like some kind of weird progress of like reaffirming, like I need to do better. First of all, with scheduling, not letting things get all out of control and just also enjoying the downtime. because it has been a long time. I don't know how much progress that is, but it felt good for me because I'm pretty much nonstop going. And so it's like, Oh, so stepping back, having time to rest, felt like progress. I think that's huge progress. And I, I'm the same way. I hardly ever just like step back and relax on the weekends and almost so much so that it feels unnatural when I do so. I'm like, am I missing something? So if you can actually settle into it and, and really recharge, it's so, so great. So I'd say that is progress. <laughs> Did you, do you remember the moment when you go, oh, I'm really relaxed I mean, on, on, was it Saturday? Was it, do you remember that? Oh, I'm really relaxing in this moment. I think it was actually Saturday and I was reading and now I'm trying to remember, of course, it seems so long ago, but it was, it was really warm this weekend too. And so just this idea of like sitting in the sun on my back deck, reading, feeling hot, like borderline too hot because you're outside and not used to this. And just like my body is not tense and I'm not like, oh, I gotta go. I should really, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, so we're probably that's still- awesome a million things I should have been doing inside the house, but like creating cinnamon and sugar, like making cinnamon sugar, exactly. Holding, holding the laundry, something yeah. terrible that I never want to do. Yeah, <laughs> All right. Well, Karen, we are so excited, like I said, to ask you about just your life as a professional writer. And I think we just want to start out by asking you how and when you decided you wanted to be a professional writer and how did that actually come into being? I know that I mentioned that we worked at a publishing company and in a sense mm-hmm. you were professionally writing then editing, right. but when did you make that jump to becoming a book author and when did you know that's what you wanted to do? I'm one of those people who I've wanted to be a writer since I was little, like age seven is when I first remember it. So there's kind of that idea of when you're little and you think of being a writer, you always think of books. But then of course, as life goes on and you know, you get a job and things get more practical, you know, even by the time I was like in college, you realize I'm probably not ever gonna write a book. Like I can still be a writer, but it'll be as a journalist, which I had studied and then working at magazines. So yeah, I've been a writer 
for a long time, but um, I totally remember the exact moment when it all changed. And it was, um, Dave, I was probably working with you then even, but I'd written a piece for Gifted for Leadership blog, which I was a, a managing editor of at the time. It was about women in leadership. And it was about the identity crisis that I'd felt like as a young mom, as a new mom. And I remember talking to my editor, Amy Simpson, about it. And I just said, you know, I could have written about this all day. And she said, oh, you should write a book about this. And it was like that little thought, like, oh, wait, this, oh yeah, people actually write books. And so that started a, a journey of actually talking to um, Ron Lee, a former colleague of all of ours, kind of working on a proposal. And it just sort of took on a life of its own. Then there was another switch of when I um, kind of left writing nonfiction um, or grownups, as I said, because one time I said that I wrote for adults and somebody thought it was Somebody, I was at a party and I told someone I wrote for adults and they said, oh, do you write erotica? And it was so mortifying. So now I, <laughs> I write for grownups. The switch to writing for children was still kind of another stop where I think somewhere in my mind, I mean, that just always seems like, oh, that would be fun to do, but I didn't really have any idea on how that could happen. What was the name of your first book? Was it Mama's Got a Fake ID? That was Mama's Got a Fake ID, yes. Yeah. And can you tell us just a little bit about how that process of putting together the ideas for your first book worked and maybe how it was different or how it was the same for all the books that followed? Like what, what's the process that you went through? Like I have this idea now what? I mean, basically the process is the same, I think for all the books. I mean, even it's even similar with a kid's book, although the way you present it is very different. But so basically I think it comes down to, you have this idea, you know, you need to think, well, is this a whole book? Cause I think having worked in magazines, we all know that there are many books that should just be a magazine article. They have no business being that long. So you really have to think, is this something that I could sustain over 12 chapters? Could I really develop this? Would it be interesting? Yeah. That's a real, what you just said there was so significant. Is this just a magazine article uh -huh. of maybe 1500 to 2,500 words? Or is this something that I can sustain over ch 12 chapters? How do you yeah. know that when, you, when you're thinking about an idea? I don't know that there's a solid way of doing it, except that you know, when you're developing the book proposal, which is a key part of doing it, it, it a, a big part of the book proposal is developing the chapters, right? So if like the book is, I'm gonna write about um, this dog painting on my wall over there, so maybe, you know, if I, if I can get to 12 chapters or 13 or whatever, some, some books nowadays have very, very short chapters. So there's 50 of them, but I think it's really kind of outlining it in that sense. I don't outline the entire book or the entire chapters, but really going through and saying, could I actually envision that I could write 2,400 words on each of these? And, and would there be momentum? Would it take me through? Cause that's the other thing that I feel like you don't want to if each, if each chapter kind of ends with a thud and like, dung, you know, then people are probably going to put it down. So it's like, is the book over its entirety going to take the reader somewhere? But yeah, I, I was actually just reading a book over the weekend that the chapter felt so completely repetitive. And my former magazine editor brain was like, this is literally like 10 bullet points, you know, <laughs> like this is, yeah, it yeah. doesn't need to be this. You also said something so insightful. This is such a great interview already, but how do you maintain that tension? You talk about each one should be, each chapter should be leading you somewhere. And so how do you do that from chapter to chapter to chapter? Like, are you aware of that when you're writing the chapter? Like I need to create some tension here so then people dig into the next chapter. How, how do you frame that when you're writing a book? 
some writers will only talk about the arc, the narrative arc in fiction, but I do like to apply that to nonfiction as well, because I do think you need to, to move. Um, so I just turned in a manuscript, actually the first book that I've written for adults in quite a while, um, and it's about animals and what animals reveal about um, our creator. And as I was kind of crafting the, the different um, chapters, I was really kind of looking at that tension, like, yes, yeah, so we need to start in one place, you know, so we kind of, I started with a love chapter, because that's easy, right? And then kind of seeing like, all right, let's build on that a little bit, and then get people maybe to this weird place, and then you need to move hearts and spirits. But the other one is too, I think that there is, like you said, kind of that tension, and particularly, I think, when it's more narrative, and when you have your own personal stories in there, you know, you're aware that you are taking people on this life journey. The other thing that helps is that I am definitely one of those writers who writes to figure things out. So a lot of it is my own exploration. Like if I'm trying to figure this out, there's kind of a sense of the, the chapters flowing along my own journey there too. What did you learn from that first proposal that you, you sent off? Like what, what surprised you most when you sent off your first proposal? <laughs> just how hard it can be to write a good book proposal. Cause you think like, oh, this is easy. You just gotta slap in a summary and figure out a hook and get the comparable titles and the chapter things. But fortunately the editor I was working with, this was before I had an agent. He was really focused on, if you want this to pass first the editorial committee and then the pub board committee, you know, if you wanna get this, it has to stand head and shoulders above other stuff we're seeing, you know? So that hook that you come up with really has to grab them. It has to show why this is different, why you need to write this book, and yet also at the same time show that this isn't some weird outlier book that nobody would be interested in. And so I think it really kind of taught me the discipline that this creating a great book proposal, there's a there's a craft to it, you know, to making it really not only include all the pertinent information, but to make to make it stand out and make people notice, yeah, we probably should do this book. I would like to focus on, you talked about the idea of a hook. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I loved about the title of your first book, Mama's Got a Fake ID, mm -hmm. that is just a great title for a book. Was that the hook as well? Talk about what was the hook of that first book? And how did you hang all the chapters around that hook? The title, I mean, started out like as a joke. So in my head, that had been kind of like the jokey hook sort of like this idea that like, and I think in its most generic form, it was just like an, an identity of motherhood things. I remember organizing that book though. I mean, it was in two parts. So the first part was sort of my, you know, because it was a faith-based book, uh, this kind of theological justification of identities in general. Even looking back now, I realized, man, I was really trying to like justify this to myself, like why this all mattered. And then the second half of the book got very practical of just ways to kind of, if you are struggling personally with your identity, how to, how to shape that, how to live into that, how to figure out who you are if you feel lost. So looking back, I mean, that book was published, I don't know, 13 years ago or something. And it also feels very 13 years ago, very kind of in the self-help era and all that. I got to go back and see what that hook was. It worked. Whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, no That's great. <laughs> So Karen, between then and now, there's a huge, a, there's a huge emphasis now placed on your following, how you're personally going to promote a book. Were they looking at that back then or how, what were they looking for back then and how, 
how do they ask you for that now or do you feel like because you are a published author they know that you have this following and therefore this track record and therefore you'll sell books for them how does how does that work now and versus then definitely back then they that was something that they wanted that was very important to them knowing that there would be this connection and way to connect with audiences um and i it continues to be very important so i don't think that that has gone away at all and it's certainly they don't care that you've written books before they still want to know you know where you are now with audience and um you know who that there's people who are going to connect with that doesn't go away i mean granted my books have not sold to the level of you know I like to like where Stephen King, you know, just writes an idea on a piece of paper and slides it across the table and they go, okay, I'll give you $20 million or whatever. Like <laughs> that's not where I am. So definitely they still want to know all those numbers, you know, and what you're going to do. The kids book world is a little bit different because it's not writing for blogs and stuff isn't really where you're selling kids books. So that feels a little bit different in terms of numbers, but they are very interested in half sales and, and how you're going to market and are you willing to do, you know, Zooms into schools and all that kind of stuff. So is that what they're primarily interested in and with children's book is getting into schools and into libraries, presentations, things like that. That, that is huge. Yeah. So that's been really tricky during COVID. Um, But yeah, that's, that's what they love to see. You know, are you going to show up and do the readings at the bookstores? Will people show up to see you, you know, and you can't, always control that that's always iffy but um the social media stuff plays a part too i mean particularly for little kids where it's still the parents buying the books so if it's picture books and stuff then then social media is still key but yeah getting out there in front of kids is important you talked about that emotion of not being like stephen king where Uh you're going to get you know a million dollars for writing one paragraph you know what is that emotion like for you knowing that you may never be a bestseller like that what keeps you continuing to write, even if it's, you know, not as lucrative as maybe you want it to be? I think just the love of, of doing it. Now, I, there are always the writers who say like, oh, I just, I write because I have to. Like, I don't have to. I don't feel this compulsion every day if I don't plunk out stuff that I'm going to die. Um, I write because I have the opportunity to. And I feel very fortunate. I was actually saying this to my son, who's a musician, um, not that long ago. Like, to be a working writer is just a huge gift. Like I'm not famous. I'm not rich from it. And that is fantastic. Maybe 10 years ago, I would have been sad about that because I would have felt like, oh, that's the goal. But just the idea that I continue to have opportunities to write is, is a gift. And like, even now, like right now, officially I have no books under contract. I just turned in a couple of revised manuscripts and now I'm in this great place where I'm like, oh, I can start thinking and dreaming again of doing things. And so I think it's the thrill of coming up with new ideas, new characters, and then putting together those proposals, seeing what my agent says and seeing if we get a bite. So So speaking of the agent, so you went from not having an agent to having an agent. Could you describe that process and, and how that works? Not how it works, for everyone, but how it worked for you. Okay. Yes. My first book I did do unagented, which, you know, most of publishing, at least with the traditional publishing houses, you need an agent. Um, In this case, I was working with a former boss. So I was able to to connect with him. Um, And that there are other people who connect in various ways too. But 
Um, I've actually had a couple different agents in my career because before when I was doing books more in the religious um, realm and that were more for adults, when I decided to move more and focus more into children's publishing, my agent and I amicably parted ways because it was just, that wasn't, she didn't want to learn about that. It's a whole other thing for agents. They tend to be in their zone, you know? I got back out there and that it's a terrifying time to try and find an agent. I have to tell you, it's exhausting and it can be really hard because it sets you up for rejection. Just, you know, and it can be really, really difficult. But I was extremely fortunate one day. This is not normally how it works. So anyway, normally to get an agent, you go through, talk to writer friends, go to writing workshops and conferences, all that good stuff. But otherwise, it's Google people, read what their wish lists are and what they want and see if anybody connects. But there was a day um, I had noticed a retweet on Twitter, obviously, of um, when my book Grit and Grace came out about four or five years ago, I guess, maybe. It hasn't been that long. And there was a retweet from a woman named Adria Getz. And I just and I clicked it. Isn't that fun, Dave? Yeah. Um, I know. When I first talked to her, she was like explaining how to pronounce it. And I'm like, no, no, I know, I know. Um, but I got it. Yay. I got it. Yep, exactly. And I clicked on her, you know, bio. I'm like, oh, this is nice, whatever. And I see that she's a literary agent. And I just kind of DM'd her and said, hey, thanks for retweeting, you know, that thing about my book. And she said, oh, I'm just a big fan of your publishing house and that editor and blah, blah. blah. And it just kind of opened up this conversation. And she's a, a children's book lit- uh, agent. And um, I sent her some ideas and she's been my agent ever since. So that was a really serendipitous occurrence that doesn't always happen. But anyway. What does an agent do for you that you can't do on your own when pitching ideas to publishers? What does the agent do that you're underqualified for? What is the benefit of having an agent? Super good question. So primarily, and again, this isn't all publishers, but in general, an agent can get you in the door where you can't get yourself. Like I just cannot send something directly to Scholastica or whatever, you know, I just, that door is not open um, unless you have some personal relationship or you've met, there are 4% of the time, there are some other ways, but in general, that is the main advantage. But before that, there's a ton of other stuff. They are people who should um, give you feedback on your ideas. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've sent something that I thought was just wonderful, like to Adria, like, hey, I think I'm going to do this. And what do you think about this? And she's like, yeah, that won't ever sell. And whatever. And it's just really helpful because it allows you to not go down this whole path. And when she'll say, I just had a similar book, I tried for a year, didn't go anywhere, whatever. Giving editorial feedback. Not all agents do that, but a lot of them will. And then of course, I, you know, the negotiation of contracts, um, an agent generally gets 15% of your advances on royalties and then royalties as well. But to me, it's totally worth it because I'm not dealing with the money side thing. And it's wonderful to have somebody else say you need more money, you know, and not to feel like you're so greedy. I also like it, and this does not happen very often, but I feel like having an agent allows me to say like the very nice, helpful author who's willing to do anything, whatever, but then the agent can kind of be the one to go, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. You know, so it's kind of nice (laughs) to have that somebody else out there to be to be the bad guy. So you can just stay at a really non-greedy author. But I wanted to circle back to uh, something you said about the value of putting together a proposal. And I think you have to have a really well done proposal 
for a traditional publisher. But a lot of people are not using a traditional publisher anymore. They might either self-publish or have what they call a hybrid publisher, which is kind of a combination between self-publish. You're actually paying a publisher, but you're getting some professional services and they're publishing the book. So talk, I just, I, I think it would be good for you just to say, or at least to address the issue of slowing down, even if you're not going with a traditional publisher to write that proposal. Sure. Yeah, I have lots of writer friends who have been traditionally published, but who choose the self-publishing route, or some people who just feel so fed up with traditional publishing, which is a very slow process. Um, particularly people who, you know, they they need to get their book out. They want to get their message out. They are speakers. They are business people. They have. There's a great reason for that book to just be done and done well. So there is a huge market and reason for people to do hybrid or self-publishing, totally support it. But absolutely, I think doing a proposal is for your, even if, if it's for yourself. And I think a lot of even kind of the hybrid publishing companies still want to see some kind of proposal. But to me, it's invaluable because it does, like you, like you said, it helps us slow down and look at the overall picture of the book. It forces us to actually find out, is there a market for this? Are there, you know, other books that are similar and yet mine stands out a little bit, you know, and certainly developing the, the chapters is invaluable. I, I almost never actually change the order of the chapters that I propose, which is kind of weird, but I do spend a lot of time thinking through that ahead of time. And then it helps so much that when you go to write these chapters that you have this beautiful paragraph or two that you've already, you know, kind of given shape and thought to and just to be able to go from that so you're not hitting each chapter with a blank page. Also, I think just some of the marketing considerations that you would need to do for a, a traditional publisher, you need to be marketing your own book, your book, no matter how you publish it. So do think through endorsers, do think through what am I willing to do to market this and promote this and be really honest because it's easy to say like, oh yeah, I could show up and do book clubs and readings and stuff every week, blah, 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 or I'll do, but you're probably not going to want to do that because it's exhausting, you know, so really take a look at it. And I think get feedback from other people who've put together their proposals too, to just make it, make it for yourself more than anything. Karn, what do you get the most bang for your buck when it comes to book promotion? As far as, is it doing these readings at um, bookstores or is it online promotion through Twitter? Where, where do you get the biggest bang for your buck? How do you get the most people to show up and actually buy your book? To be honest, I think it kind of varies because you know how like social media sometimes is where like something, one place catches on in another place that you think, oh, this would be great. And it kind of thuds. Um, I do actually think the live events are great because you are able to I have my kids usually standing over there, record me, film this, take pictures. You know, you can do other things. So you're doing it live, but you are also able to, to get some extra life out of that later, you know, and just whatever, thanks. And then you're tagging the bookstore and the thank you. And, and it, it just kind of has a little more shelf life, I guess, or has legs would be another way of saying it, that it can kind of carry on. So to me, when you have an event like that, and it's just really fun, it's fun to be off of social media and connect. Again, because of COVID, that sort of stuff feels like, a million years ago, but um, it's, it's coming back and it's happening again. And I think that that's probably my favorite way. I feel like Twi Instagram is maybe a little bit harder. I think Twitter, for some reason, the writer community feels very active. 
for books. And it feels very helpful because you do get people easily retweeting and Instagram is more fun for sharing the covers and stuff. That's really, that's really insightful. We talk to authors a lot about picking a platform and what works best for you and where your audience is going to be. And um, lots of people are on Facebook, not too many people are on Instagram because that's such a visual space. Mm -hmm. And words typically aren't visual. So unless you're going to be doing some sort of a visual book, it may not be the right place. But Twitter, that's really interesting that you've had success with Twitter because of the retweeting. And mm -hmm. it is more language driven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you retweet a lot too? Other, is that something that you're disciplined about, retweeting what other authors have written? In the past few months, I've kind of gone through a little bit of social media burnout. I've actually just been trying to get myself back in this place of like do this because it is so helpful. You know, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are writers and or other clients of my agent, you know, and they're putting out these amazing things. And it's such an easy way to support other writers too, you know, to just say and share this and write a little thing about it. And yeah, I think that's the other thing that's nice about Twitter is there's because of the the character count still. I mean, you could do a thread, but there's not the pressure to say something super long. Right, right. That's so true. Can you identify a moment where you thought, I don't want to do this professional writing anymore? Like, was there ever a moment where you said, it's just not worth it? What was the low point in your professional writing life? Can you identify that for our audience? And how did you get through that? It was after I wrote a book, excuse me, called Broke, which was um, kind of our journey through uh, financial difficulties and, and learning about that. Um, the book had gone through, that was not how it was purchased originally. And it went through some big changes, which was okay. I was, ended up being really happy with the book, but just the, the toll of writing such a personal story. And then, I don't know. I just, I remember experiencing like this kind of feeling of like, I can't do that anymore. I cannot share that personally. It felt like just too much. There wasn't any pushback about being too candid. In fact, there are people who were just so grateful and appreciative of that. I think it was just something happening in my own kind of spirit where I was like, this is, if this is what it's got to be, I'm not yeah. gonna, I, I just cannot do this. And so I remember then thinking like, all right, I think we'll be done. I'm trying to think. And that might've been the last thing I wrote then. And then when I started writing kids book, which was just terrific and it feels much more life-giving. And then we'll see. And then I just wrote again for adults, which the project was super, super fun to do. And I loved writing about it. So it did feel once again, but I think that's one of the things, I mean, that's just kind of one of the trends of publishing. I think where maybe when I wrote broke, it was just kind of on the cusp of like, everything's super vulnerable. Everything's, you know, and, and I'm a big believer in vulnerability. I don't think that we should be writing and trying to hide things, but it just felt really taxing at the time. It just yeah, felt, yeah. I felt depleted. Do you feel like you don't give as much of yourself to your children's books, like because it's um, it's in a different world or it's not as revealing of yourself or what's the difference between the children's book writing and writing for adults in the nonfiction realm? Definitely that is true in the sense that it's not as, um, yeah, it doesn't feel like you're just being as vulnerable or laying yourself as bare. That said, I always, I, I never, at least with the kids books, I mean, I really try not to ever write with an agenda, but yet there's sometimes when I, I reread things and I was like, yeah, yeah, I know what I was thinking there, you know, but um, definitely it feels it's, it's freer and just, I think the more imaginative play element of it, but it's hard. I mean, nonfiction kind of creative nonfiction, whatever they call it, my kids call it that in school now, 
that's sort of my mother language. You know, I love a good essay. I love to write a good essay. So that's where I feel really most comfortable. And writing for children is you have all these other things in your mind, reading levels. And I'm not a teacher, my background, you know, so things like the Lexile scores and all these kind of things are beyond me and not beyond me. I, mean, I had to learn about them, but um, there's just other things that are going on, you know, and trying to, to balance all that. But yeah, it's, you don't, feel, I, I don't feel as emotionally. Do you feel like the storytelling that you developed as an adult nonfiction writer translated well into storytelling for children? Like, is the strategy the same? Is it different? I think so. I mean, that's kind of what I was trying to say before about the narrative arc that I feel like it needs to be present no matter what. I mean, clearly it's not exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, I, I think storytelling is storytelling and learning to do it well translates into lots of different kinds of writing. I mean, I see it if I'm giving a talk, the bones of that are the same. You know, again, you want to pe- take people on a journey. You don't want them to be in the same place when you finish as where they where they started. And that's true, whether it's for a picture book for kids or, or whatever you're writing. Would that be how you define the narrative arc? Is that you take people on a journey so that at the end of whatever you're doing, whether it's a talk, a book, uh, an article that they're in a different place. Would, is, would that, is that how you would define the narrative arc? I think someone, you know, some people in our audience may have never heard that phrase before, but that's a really helpful concept. Yeah, I, I do kind of think that's how I would define it. I mean, there's all the technical things of the, and Melissa would know this better than I, you know, the conflict and the rising, um, action. The rising action and the um, climax and the denouement, exactly. All of that, you know, it's kind of the official language, but yeah, I think it is. It's it's moving people along. I just wrote working on a project actually with the Shedd Aquarium and um, Harbor Collins about these penguins. And so I had to have this, you know, it's this little journey of the penguins going around and it's sort of funny, but it's like, I wanted the penguins to be different when they got back to their habitat. And I want the reader to feel different when they get back to the habitat. So it's like both those things going on, yeah. How do you work in the writing life, the writing habit into your life? Because you do work in addition to writing professionally. So how do you work that into your life? In kind of a haphazard way, I'm not, I'm disciplined when I have a deadline and there's something very specific. Like if I know I need to turn this manuscript in on this date, like I am able to kind of break it down and say, this is where I need to be, whether it's, you know, whether I'm looking at it like a chapter a week, or if I'm looking at, I need to have this draft done by that point, but I don't always work like the same time of day. Um, Sometimes I get up early in the morning to do it. Other times it's in the evening, a lot of weekends doing that, but I feel like the advantage to writing that first book, the fake ID book, um, so my kids, I had three kids, I still do have three kids. They were very little at the time. And literally it was learning to write it in the most, I mean, I, there were, there were days I was literally like on the edge of the toilet, writing it while the kids were in the bath or something, you know? And so developing those kind of skills of just being able to pop in and write have been incredibly helpful to me. Cause I know some people it's like, they need stillness and quiet for four hours. They need to light candles and meditate and all that. I don't. So I just kind of pop in. I like that you provide a different framework for people because there is so much credibility given to the carving out four hours to sit down. Oh, yeah. And so many people, I, I guess, do need that to actually quiet themselves to be able to, but if you can, if you can get ideas out there while you're on the edge of the toilet, while your kids are bathing, I, you need to embrace that. You know, if you, if you can actually think that way and do it, then embrace it and embrace those moments. I think that's hugely freeing for people who maybe don't have those huge chalk 
blocks of time, those huge chunks of time, or um, maybe don't operate best that way. Right. I think there's this idea and a lot of people get it where, you know, as if you get like a sabbatical for three months and you go to the cabin in the woods and write without, I don't think most writers have that luxury. What gives you the most energy, whether it's feedback from an agent, whether it's feedback from someone who's read your book, when someone says something, what's the emotion that you feel and what, what are they saying? doesn't have to be the exact words, but what, what really inspires you to continue to do what you do? I actually think my favorite feedback that I ever get is um, not at the beginning of a project, but after a rewrite. Like when you get to the point where I've already gotten like, maybe it's come back from my agent or maybe it's from the editor later on. And, you know, and they've sent back the manuscript with different things and ah, it's tweak this, that, or whatever. And then delivering it and me feeling good about it and them kind of coming back with, yes, you got it. You nailed it. Like, it, because to me, that shows the collaborative nature of writing, you know, writing isn't just me. It's about the editing. It's about all these other people feeding into it. And so I love that moment when I realized, ooh, this was a good collaboration. My editor's feedback made this better. I understood what he or she was saying. I implemented it. And now we've got something that's really great. Like that to me is the most energizing. That's hugely encouraging. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. I think so many, especially first time authors are really fearful of that feedback. But if they can embrace it as something that's actually going to make you a better communicator, uh-huh. better able to connect with your audience and your reader, then it's a huge gift. Dave and I were just talking earlier today about how I'm always so worried when he doesn't edit something of mine, because I, I think it, it's really not that good. Please edit, please make it better. <laughs> you know. So I love that you're saying that, it, that it's a collaborative effort writing is. Yeah. Well, and the more you write and the more you're edited, the more I think you value that. Um, the same, even here, like at my, my job, I often have other people read things because I don't, I'm actually not, not so insecure, but I just feel much better when somebody else has said, okay, yeah, this is good. Even if it's just finding a typo. Absolutely. Those typos can be, I feel like writers aren't necessarily the best copy editors. I saw that on your, um, your bio page, like it, oh my goodness, your husband yeah. is a copy editor. <laughs> oh, right. And I, I'm a terrible speller too. So I'm like, <laughs> kind of embarrassing. Anyway. <laughs> well, Dave, do you have one final question? I know you always have to get in the final word. So no. oh, please, that hurts. <laughs> that really hurts. No, I, I'll let you have the final word. All right. <laughs> well, I will say thank you to Karen so much for just offering your decades worth of experience with writing. And there's so many nuggets for people just to, to taste and internalize and chew on for the next for the next few weeks. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So, so before we close out the episode, Dave and I are gonna do our words of the episode and I will go first. And mine is approbative and- Whoa, 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 slow down. What is it? Approbative, A-P-P-R-O-B-A-T-I-V-E. And it's like approbation. And it's one of those stupid SAT, ACT words, and it's an ugly word, so I don't like to use it, but I'm, I talked about how I'm reading all these poetry, um, all, these, all these poems with my son who's taking a poetry class. And so every uh, Monday night and Wednesday night, we get together and we read his poems for the week. And last night we were reading T.S. Eliot, who by the way is probably one of the most beautiful poets, but also one of the most incredibly complex and difficult and dense uh, 
poets. I, I read The Wasteland last time. I'm like, I don't know what he just said. It was beautiful, but I'm so dumb because I don't understand it. But this was actually, a probative was in an essay that he wrote about traditionalism in, in, in literature. And so he used it in the sentence and he basically said, seldom perhaps does the word traditional appear except in a phrase of censure, if otherwise it is vaguely approbative. So he's talking about how um, um, authors, artists, poets, they don't like to be considered traditional, but he makes this argument that actually you need to embrace the traditions of the past because you're part of this continuum. So anyway, approbative, and it means expressing or manifesting praise or approval, affirming and positive. So vaguely approbative means vaguely affirmative, vaguely positive. So that's my word. So David, you redline something of mine and then you say, yeah, that was all right. That's kind of approbative. Vaguely approbative. <laughs> I would hope this was excellent. And that's very approbative. <laughs> that's great. Approbative. I like the word. That's a great word. You always come up with these like complex words that I would never, I may have heard of them before, but I may not have heard of them before. I certainly have not used them before. Okay. So I'm going to give you, you know, this is why we do it because you can see these words if I tell you like use them they don't become part of your vocabulary so i love this part of our podcast okay your turn dave okay so my word is <laughs> is gesticulate yeah gesticulate so it's the idea when you use gestures especially you know dramatic ones instead of speaking to emphasize one's words so i thought i would read from flannery o'connor's book wise blood so she uses the word uh, gesticulate. And so here, here you go. It goes, there, facing him under a street light, was a high rat-colored car, and up on the nose of it, a dark figure with a fierce white hat on. The figure's arms were working up and down, and he had thin gesticulating hands, almost as pale as the hat. Nice. Man, that's some good writing. Really good writing. How did yeah, you come across? Were you reading that for pleasure or? I generally read about nine books at a time. <laughs> and so I even do that with Audible. I'm I'm reading Jaber Crow. Or no, I'm not reading. I'm listening to Jaber Crow by uh, Wendell Berry while I'm also listening to The Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. And you couldn't have two different books. Uh, but I do like reading multiple books at one time so i've been working on wise blood for quite some time so yes i am reading it but i'm trying to do it slowly because you can't really read flannery o'connor quickly and so uh, i'm trying to do it appropriately so yes absolutely flannery o'connor and t.s Eliot. you gotta slow down for those <laughs> you gotta slow down for those exactly Karen, not to put you on the spot but do you have a word that you would like to share with our audience anything come to mind well, just because we mentioned denouement earlier, it's just such a fun word to say. You don't always say that, you know? Absolutely. The resolution, where we're at now. That's right. And this is our denouement of the podcast. Which yep. That's, a, that's great a great word. That's a great word. a fun word. It is a fun word. It actually sounds what it means. I mean, I know it's not really traditional onomatopoeia, but it has that kind of falling action, the denouement, you know? So it actually feels like the meaning, the falling action. <laughs> so yeah, that's great. 
That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's another one. That's awesome. We'll just keep on having words. Yeah, that's great. All right, Dave, do you want to talk about road trippers before we say goodbye? Okay, road trippers. So we have a Facebook group. It's closed called Road Trippers. And if you'd like to jump on, we'll let you in. Each week we post our weekly Q&A Zoom link. And we, and Melissa and I, uh, we have a, a group of writers that we work with that are going through their book writing journey with us. And so each week at 3.30 on Tuesday Central, we do an hour long Q and A. So writers bring their questions. In fact, we also do a little bit of a teaching session. This week, we're actually taking a piece of writing that one of the writers created and showing how, um, how he or she might improve that piece. So it's a great weekly Q and A. And it's just, a, we're just working this with a pilot group right now. So jump on Road Trippers on Facebook, just search for it, you can find it. Uh, there's a couple of Road Trippers groups and then ask, to be invited in, we'll let you in and you can join our group if you want to and and see what we're doing. Long-term, we're building uh, a membership community online at journey66.com and Road Trippers is our membership uh, community. So we'd love to uh, love to see you there. So jump on Facebook and search for Road Trippers. Awesome. All right, well, I think that's a wrap. Is it a wrap on your end, Dave? I think it's a wrap. All right, wrap, it's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. <laughs>